Cape Up is sponsored by Bowl and Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. Promo code CAPEUP. Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Loretta Lynch, the 83rd Attorney General of the United States, returns to the podcast to talk about a host of issues, from that impromptu tarmac meeting with President Clinton to her working relationship with then-FBI Director James Comey. We met frequently. We talked about a lot of sensitive things in the course of our working relationship together, which was a good working relationship. It was open. It was positive. We communicated well, or so I thought. Hear all of what she has to say, including the latest moves in the Mueller investigation and that raid on the president's lawyer, Michael Cohen, right now. Loretta Lynch, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the first time we ever met was in Aspen in June of 2016. And it was just days after what is now known as the infamous tarmac meeting. Looking back after all this time, what were you thinking when President Clinton is there in front of you on on the plane? Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to go back uh, to that time, we have to raise the temperature to about 107 degrees, which is what it was in Phoenix that evening. It was a warm evening. And we were at the end of a long day, end of my trip, um, getting ready to, to leave, getting ready to go off the plane and continue our night was told that he wanted to come on and say hello and said, okay, we can do that. Um, Because it was, in my mind, similar to how I had encountered uh, numerous other people in airports over the years, Uh, some people in public life, some people in private life. Um, And it was supposed to be a short meet and greet, hi, how are you, and move on. And for most of the time, my husband and I were still standing up during most of the conversation because we're we're ready to leave and walk off the plane. And staff was off the plane. I mean, it was just you and your staff husband. Staff had moved maybe... off the plane. The flight crew was still on the plane. Two members of the flight crew were in the back. And uh, President Clinton spoke with them for a few minutes and greeted my husband they'd never met, um, said hello to me, and, and just, you know, the usual exchange of pleasantries. And that was supposed to be all that it was. Um, and it just continued into a conversation much too long. <laughs> um, much too long, despite several uh, several efforts of saying, well, thank you for coming in and saying hello. We've got to move on now. And the, but the conversation continued. And I remember when you were describing it during that event at Aspen, I got the distinct impression that, one, President Clinton did most of the talking and that he just was just, I guess, happy to see you, happy to see anybody and just wanted to talk? (laughs) Well, I think, um, you know, most people I think who know President Clinton could probably describe his conversational style better than I could. It's actually the first conversation I ever really had with him. And I think when I asked him about his new grandchild and congratulated him on that, he, like most proud grandparents, um, was affected by that and wanted to talk about that and shared a lot about that and and asked us a few questions about how we had managed sibling rivalry with our kids, but mostly about how their family was adapting to two babies, uh, which is a joyous event um, and was something that, that really clearly affected him very deeply. Um, One of the other questions that arose as a part of that incident is everyone kept asking, why didn't she just get off my plane? 
which isn't an unreasonable question. Why not say, great to see you, get off my, get off my plane? Well, a few times we did say, great to see you, thank you for stopping by, but the conversation continued. <laughs> but not get off my and plane. And then ultimately one of my staffers came on to assist with that, um, to say, you know, we all have to move on to our evenings. Um, and even then we had to say, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna leave now. It's time to move on. Uh, and ultimately, you know, we all moved on to our evenings. But the issue for me after that um, wasn't so much about my own thoughts or, or concerns for myself, but concerns for the Department of Justice and for concerns for any perceptions that that was going to give the American people that the email investigation was going to be affected or impacted in any way by that. And that was my responsibility as the Attorney General. I had to consider that issue first and foremost. Um, you know, as opposed to my feelings or my own thoughts, it was, you know, you're leading the department. How do you make sure that this does not cause a problem for the resolution of that or any case? Um, and so that was my thought going forward. And as I looked at how to handle that, that was one of the reasons why, as you and I were speaking, I was describing the process by which the case was going to be resolved. Uh, and it was some things that I'd already said. That is to say that the team of career lawyers and prosecutors and agents who were working on that were going to make a recommendation, hopefully in my view a joint recommendation to me, as to what they thought should happen in the case. Uh, and I would review that. And my view was that, as, as I had already expressed before, that I would likely accept that recommendation, barring some sort of factual issue or legal issue that I wasn't satisfied with. And so I wanted to sort of peel back the curtain and tell the American people, no, this, this conversation that I had, which in no way touched on the investigation or anything of substance about the Department of Justice, that conversation was not going to impact how that case was going to be resolved. And you, you told Lester Holt that you, as you just told me now, that you thought the conversation with President Clinton was going to be a social call. But in that moment, did it, did it occur to you not just, oh my God, it's President Clinton who's standing here in front of me, but his wife is a subject or of of an investigation and just the 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 image of this is something that is going to do harm to me, to the department, to the investigation. Well, certainly I, I did think that the perception that people could have of that interaction was something that could raise concerns about how the investigation was going to be handled. You know, as the attorney general, you see people who are connected with investigations all the time. You see attorneys for witnesses, for subjects. Um, you see people themselves who are witnesses and subjects. And certainly in Washington, when it comes to sensitive matters involving public figures, you're often sitting next to those public figures for some function or another. So interacting with someone who was close to an investigation wasn't something new or unusual to me, or frankly, for any attorney general. But the issue is always, how do you manage that interaction? You know, you never talk about anything to do with the issues under consideration, whether it was uh, former President Clinton or anybody else. Um, and then, but if you do find yourself in a situation, as I did, where you may have raised this misperception, how do you manage that? How do you let people know within the department that, look, you know, the work that you've been doing for over a year you know, well before this event happened, is going to be protected and preserved and given the same import? Um, and how do you let the American people know that this conversation is going to have no impact on that? And that was my issue at the time, and that was my goal. 
you didn't recuse yourself from from the investigation, and you may recall you and I had a little rhetorical tussle over the word accept when you said you, were, you would accept the recommendations. But one of the questions that um, has, has come to mind of late is why not to be completely transparent and to really, to the public's mind, preserve whatever integrity of the investigation, did you hand over authority to the Deputy Attorney General, Sally Yates, as an added layer of protection, if you will, for the integrity of the investigation, the reputation of the department? Well, certainly that's always an option. And and whenever there's a situation where recusal is an issue, the first thing you do is you consult with your legal and ethical experts. And you look at the rules of of professional conduct that are going to apply in the situation. And if there's a legal obligation to recuse, had there been one, I would have done so. We definitely did that analysis and had that interpretation um, provided to me and to the team. So then the issue is if there's no legal obligation to recuse, do you then go ahead and do it anyway? Um, And my view was we had already laid out the parameters for the investigation. We needed to lay them out again in any event, regardless of whether it was going to be myself or the deputy AG at the helm of the decision-making process. Um, And also, uh, Jonathan, you know, my view is that when you lead an organization, one of the things you have to do is accept mistakes that you make. You have to accept responsibility for that. You have to own up to it. And as tempting as it may be to pass off your responsibilities to someone else, and the deputy AG was certainly um, a person of integrity and spirit and, and a great leader of the department, Um, during that time and thereafter, as tempting as it may be to pass off that burden to somebody else, um, that's not what you do. Uh, when When you're leading an organization and if you've created a problem that you need to resolve, you need to follow through and resolve it. Were you then completely blindsided by just days later what then FBI Director James Comey did? with that press conference? Well, I think a lot of people were surprised by that, not just myself. Um, All of us who were in the leadership component of the department uh, were not aware that it was coming. Um, And, you know, the director obviously had his reasons for doing so. He stated some of them. I'm sure we'll hear more. Certainly, I did think that um, it was was a very different way of providing the investigator's recommendation to me. Um, It was not something that had been done before by any of the of the components. So that was the very that press conference was the very first time you had even heard about or seen the recommendations was that press conference. Well, understand also that it was really only half of the recommendations. Um, the director of the FBI said, this is what the FBI recommends happen. This is what we're, we're transmitting to the attorney general. Um, I was then waiting to hear from the lawyers on this team, the people who were going to do the legal analysis, who were going to look at the facts that had been found by the investigators, who were going to apply the law to those facts, who were going to review the cases, who were going to look at our prosecution guidelines and give me literally a litigation recommendation one way or the other. So, um, yes, it was unusual. And and clearly, it garnered a great deal of attention um, because, in fact, it was so different and we had not seen anything like that before. Uh, But the reality is it was really only half the story. Hmm. You... um in June of 2017, he is now has been fired. He, James Comey, has been fired by President Trump. He says to the Senate Intelligence Committee, at one point, the attorney general had directed me not to call it an investigation. This is the 
invent the probe into the the Clinton email server, but instead to call it a matter, which confused me and concerned me. And then he added that it gave him a queasy feeling. In your interview with Lester Holt, you you asked the question, "What is the issue here?" Can you explain why you insisted that the the Clinton email server probe be described as a matter and not an investigation? Well, first of all, Jonathan, let me say that at no time during the pendency of the email investigation, beginning, middle, or end, did I ever direct or coerce anyone to say or do anything inappropriate or to come to me with a specific recommendation or conclusion. Um, The team was left with independence. They were given the resources they needed to carry out their investigation, which they did. It was very thorough. They interviewed, interviewed, I, I think, hundreds of people, certainly reviewed thousands of documents and just... Um, terabytes of, of data. This interaction that that the director referenced um, was one, and when I raised the issue of what was the issue in my in my discussion with Lester, it was because when it was first raised, um, both at the time and then later, um, it was not something of great moment. The issue that we were discussing was in in the context of upcoming congressional testimony by both him and and me, uh, making sure that we could inform Congress fully of resources that we needed, whether or not we had the appropriate resources, um, things that were going on in the department, and still being consistent with our law enforcement obligations, which is we don't confirm or deny investigations of anyone until they're public, except for rare exceptions. And then if, in fact, there is public discussion about investigations, as there tends to be, and as there came to be about this case, we don't discuss details about them publicly. Those principles are, are ones that the department has held on to for the generations that preceded me as attorney general, and I believe will succeed me and this current administration's uh, time as attorney general, because they're just that important. So then why do you think um, that James Comey said that he had a queasy feeling? You know, I, I can't speak to the state of his stomach. Um, he looked fine that morning uh, when we were we were all sitting in the room and there were there were several of us there discussing this issue and several other issues. Um, as we often did, we met frequently. We talked about a lot of sensitive things in the course of our working relationship together, which was a good working relationship. Um, it was open. It was positive. We communicated well, or so I thought. Um, and certainly, as I, as I indicated, the issue then was how deeply into the discussion were we going to go in a, in a very, very public setting. You also have to remember, this was the fall of 2015. It is barely two months into this investigation. It is clearly a sensitive matter. It is clearly a matter that has generated, even by then, a great deal of attention and a number of questions. I had been receiving inquiries from the media. I believe the Bureau had as well, but certainly media inquiries, inquiries from the Hill with very detailed requests um, for information. And, And as you know, when we do confirm investigations or when we do talk about them, that leads to a number of questions about individuals and their exposure. And particularly early on, that is not the time to be having that discussion. And certainly, um, it was my view then, and I still believe that, that that at that time, and even throughout the pendency of the investigation, it was important that we maintain the directives of the department. Holding on to that was going to help us carry out this investigation with independence and with integrity. At the end of the day, I think we all knew 
that because this was of such great interest to the American people, we needed to be able to describe how we handled things and how we handled issues such as this. And so for me, in my view as the Attorney General, it was important that we maintain the standards that the department had set out for handling these cases. And I will tell you that when we were having the discussion back in the fall of 2015, there was no disagreement voiced at the meeting. Um, no one asked for Maylocks. Uh, no one pulled out any Tums. Um, but more to the point, as we discussed the issues, we all left that room in agreement. So then why, with the benefit of hindsight, everything you said sounds eminently rational and, and logical, but with the benefit of hindsight, why do you think people then and still today didn't and probably won't believe a word that you just said? Is it because of partisanship? Is it because folks just don't trust the Justice Department or the Obama Justice Department? Why do, you, why do you think that might be? You know, I can't explain um, the reactions that people have to, to anything uh, that we may say about work we did in the department. I can, I can only say that because people do have strong views, do and did have strong views about the people involved in the investigation, whether it was Secretary Clinton herself, whether it was the campaign that emanated from her actions, um, whether it was their views of, of her history or not, people had very strong views about the people involved in the investigation. People tended to be, have very strong views about the Department of Justice and actions that we took in a host of areas. Uh, we were definitely still in a very partisan time, even in 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, when we tried to, to gain headway on Capitol Hill with issues that, that we thought had bipartisan support, criminal justice reform being an example. It would just, it would just crash on the shoals of, of partisanship, and, and that was disappointing in a host of arenas. I think that a lot of people viewed and still sometimes view the work of the department as, as possibly going to be able to vindicate a, a position they've held one way or the other. Um, and it, yes, it's great that people have faith in the department, but I think it's important that people remember that whoever is at the helm of the department, whoever sits in the chair of the attorney general, the mission of the department does not change. And the way in which the department goes about its work does not change and should not change. And so people will often ascribe motivations to you because that's what's important to them. But it does not fit with the motivations of people who work in the department. From where you sit now as a former attorney general, given the way the Department of Justice is performing its duties now, do you think that the that that mission has has been changed or has been um, altered in any way? Well, certainly every administration has different priorities and different ways of, of going about um, making those priorities a reality. And and I think that the the differences that we have seen. Um, have been somewhat wrenching. Uh, they've been very different from the most recent administration. Um, but the department has weathered those changes before. Um, and change is hard. It, it, is, it is challenging, particularly when priorities and methods 
um, will change in that. But the core mission of the department, the protection of the American people, is something that, frankly, most people actually don't see on a day-to-day basis. People don't see the work that we do in terms of terrorism investigations and the analysis that goes into those and the connections you have to make uh, both here and overseas. They don't see the in-depth investigations into public corruption that, that still go on. They don't see the work that goes on cultivating connections into communities to combat violent crime and the like. Uh, and so that core mission, I do think, will go on and will continue. That being said, obviously, you know, the department has recently become a lightning rod um, for, um, for many people on, on various sides of the political spectrum. And I will say that that's painful. That's a painful thing to see because I know that people who are there are there because they're committed to public service and they're dedicated to the mission of the department. And it is painful to see them attacked for that. Um, it's also painful to see the department, you know, go in different directions. But again, when you leave that position, you know that you're relinquishing it to someone else who's going to have a different set of priorities. Can you believe where we are by we, the United States, the American people are when it comes to the Department of Justice, the investigations, the everything? Um, sadly, yes. I think that this is a culmination of the partisanship that we've seen over a number of years, um, not just with this administration, but even before that, with the partisan reactions to things that the Obama administration tried to do that were clearly going to be for the benefit of the entire country. I mean, I think we look at the Affordable Care Act and how that was received at the time, how it was debated at the time, and now as people live with the reality of it, and they realize that health care is something that does not matter. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. When you or your family member are ill and you need care, all that goes out the window. Uh, And when you're faced with the difficult choices that Americans have to make about affording housing or health care, all that goes out the window. And so now we see that. Now people who have lived with the Affordable Care Act, I believe, have come together and said, you know, this is something that has measurably improved the quality of life for every American that was fortunate enough to be part of it. Um, and they see that. So you saw, you see a change. When it comes to the department, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate that the department is being used in the way that it is. You know, it's become a lightning rod. Uh, people are putting political expectations on the actions of the Department of Justice. Uh, and that's something that should not occur. Should there be a partisan view of the investigation that is being conducted by special counsel Robert Mueller? I mean, we're talking about issues of law and I mean is there should there be room for partisanship when looking at what's been happening over the last 400 and something days of the Trump administration well if you want to look at the political issues certainly there's partisanship there and people are going to express their views through that framework if you want to talk about uh, special counsel Mueller's investigation I think that's actually an example of nonpartisanship um, in this town, which is rare. But frankly, I think it's an example of some of the best work of the department. You are not hearing details coming from his office about this investigation. You are not having information leaked from his office about this investigation. You know, based on everything that we see so far, which I look at the charges that have been brought, um, the people that have been called to account for their actions, he is proceeding in a thorough 
um, nonpartisan way into some very challenging issues. You know, the issue of Russia's interference with our democracy is one that deserves, that has to have a broad, independent review. Um, and frankly, I look forward to his ultimate report on that issue, regardless of what happens with these individuals who are going to get caught up in the vortex of that investigation. They'll be held accountable as the evidence shows, and that will be the only thing that's going to drive Bob Mueller and his team. Uh, and that's the way it should be. But as, as to the larger issue of looking at Russia's attempts to influence our election, um, that's something that we in the Obama administration tried to bring to light uh, during 2016. Uh, you know, we tried to have those discussions and we tried to raise that issue. Um, and yes, it was hard to make headway in the noise of the of the campaign. Uh, but steps were taken and and, uh, and information was provided. Um, and I think many of us were frankly disappointed and surprised at how little it seemed to resonate with the American people. Well, there's the the noise of the campaign, but there was also the the inaction by congressional leaders, Republican congressional leaders. It's been reported that Senate um, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pointedly said, we are not going to sign on to this press release because, well, no. And so don't Republicans, particularly congressional Republicans, have a responsibility for not the noise of the campaign, but for the inability of the American people to take seriously what was happening to the foundation of American democracy as it was happening in real time. Well, that was certainly a disappointment. Yes, there, there were attempts. <laughs> That's one way to it talk was, about it, it. it was, and I, and I say that that literally, it was an extreme disappointment that that we were not able to convince both sides of the aisle that this was a serious enough issue that it warranted their voice as well as the executive branch's voice. Um, and, and again, I hope that they've given thought to that and that they've reflected on that and that they're looking at the issues that are being developed about this, this level of interference now. And I hope that they've learned from that. Certainly, I think that people who worked on it then have learned uh, from it that, that we did a lot of things, but certainly need to redouble those efforts. Um, but yes, it was disappointing to, to say, you know, we really want to have this joint statement about this important issue that affects the entire country and to have a group say, no, we, we don't really trust your motives and therefore we can't sign on to that. But that's happened now. Um, and I think the test for all of us going forward is how are we going to respond now to this threat and to this issue? And are we going to have bipartisan support? Are we going to be able to have people who people on Capitol Hill and in all branches say, look, regardless of whether you think that Russia had a preference or a dislike for any candidate or the other, or was trying to have a particular effect, the very act of their interference was an affront to the safety and security of all Americans. And we cannot allow this to continue. We can't allow it to happen again. My concern is that is is that we're not doing enough to prevent it from happening again. You know, we're talking a lot about um, Russia's influence in social media. We're learning more and more about that. Uh, we're talking a lot about uh, you know Russia's attempts around the world to influence elections and politics and issues there. And we're learning more and more about that. Um, you know, we're vulnerable here. Uh, and I, I join with the current congressional leaders and intelligence leaders who say we did not do enough before. And although I'm not privy to the details now, I'm gravely concerned about whether we're doing enough now.
Cape Up is sponsored by Bowl & Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code CAPEUP. So I want you to put on your, your former hat as U.S. Attorney for the, for the Eastern District. One of my favorite hats. So, okay, good. So you'll be able to answer this. So we, we, the American people, just witnessed something truly extraordinary, and that is the lawyer, personal lawyer for the president of the United States was raided. His home, the hotel where he's staying, and his office. Can you just talk about the the hoops and hurdles that are required to execute those raids mm-hmm. this wasn't something that was just hey let's just go to michael cohen's office and take some stuff this there's a process involved here there's there's a process involved and when an attorney is involved the process is heightened although i will say that even for your average everyday american you never just say hey let's go over here and take some stuff <laughs> right um that's never been the standard um to which the department has adhered uh nor would any judge give you a warrant if that's all you you presented them and it's not right to call it a break-in it's, it was not a break-in. They were lawfully executed search warrants, is my understanding. I've, I, all I've seen are the press reports, certainly. Um, but what I can say is that at least certainly the press reports are that uh, this was a matter that's being handled by the U.S. attorney in Manhattan. Uh, the offices are in that jurisdiction. That's why it falls to that U.S. attorney's office. Um, certainly press reports are that special counsel referred it. I don't have insight into that, but certainly it would be common if special counsel encountered evidence of a potential crime that didn't fall within their purview for them to refer it mm-hmm. to the appropriate authorities to review. And at that point, it becomes a case like any other. And like any other, it's going to be held to the highest standards of the department. Obviously, if you're going to get a search warrant to search anything, a house, a car, a locker, um, you've got to go to a judge. You've got to present clear and credible evidence that there's probable cause to think that there's evidence of some criminal activity in this location. You've got to outline what you think the person may have done, what the potential evidence that may be in this location is, and why you think it's there. Those three things have got to be outlined for any search warrant to be authorized by a judge. Um, And judges will often send you back and say, you know what, you satisfied certain elements, but this this particular information isn't fresh enough. You haven't really told me why you're still sure it's there today, just because it was there six months ago, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you want to search the office of a lawyer, if you want to to use legal process, uh, because lawyers' offices contain communications between themselves and a host of clients that are privileged, you have to get extra approval for that. Typically in a U.S. attorney's office, you get approval from not just the lawyer drafting the warrant, but their immediate supervisor and possibly even the criminal chief. If a lawyer is involved, the U.S. attorney has to approve it. And typically you also have to have approval from someone at Maine Justice as well because these issues are very sensitive. And what they're going to want to know, someone at Maine Justice and the U.S. attorney, they're going to look at the team who wants to execute the warrant and say, all right, what have you set in place to separate the privileged material from what may provide evidence of a crime? Great, because I wanted to ask you uh, about this because there's a certain person who's 
out there screaming about the fact that attorney-client privilege is dead. So talk about this team <laughs> that goes in there because of this attorney-client mm-hmm. privilege and privileged information. Well, attorney-client privilege is alive and well in this country. Uh, it's something that is an important aspect of our legal system. and It's something that everyone at the Department of Justice takes very seriously. Um, and if there's going to be a search of an attorney's office, um, there have to, has to be a protocol set, in, set up in advance for how you are going to separate the privileged information, but also how are you going to separate things that are just not relevant to what you're looking for from what you are specifically charged and given permission to search for. Um, you know, if you're looking for information about a few transactions, how are you going to separate that information from information about a host of other transactions? How are you going to make sure that any client... Um, regardless of, of their level of fame or, or, uh, or notoriety, um, is protected and that their material is segregated, is walled off, is kept separate from that. And then if there's material that's questionable, you're going to have a separate team that's not going to be part of the prosecution or investigative team. They call it a clean team. Clean team, or, or, or as it's gonna, been reported, the, a privileged team. Or privileged team. It's a clean team. Privileged team yeah. is, mm-hmm. is another phrase that's often used. And they will review the material and, and determine whether or not this, in fact, has evidence that's probative and relevant under the warrant, um, even if it's privileged. And then at the end of the day, there may be some questionable material that you're not sure about. You always have the option of going to a judge and getting some guidance. Um, the person whose whose premises and home were searched has the option also of going to a judge and saying, you know, I, I want to make sure that this procedure is, uh, is, is has been set up and that certain material is excluded from the purview of the investigators. So not only is attorney-client privilege alive and well, one of the Department of Justice's main obligations is to uphold it. Okay, so attorney-client privilege is alive and well, but attorney-client privilege isn't absolute. No, there's something called the crime fraud exception. Uh, and if attorney, if an attorney is involved in behavior that is part of criminal activity, then that, that behavior and that information is not privileged. Okay. <laughs> and what I, I mean, also say, Jonathan, is, is that this is an unusual step, um, but it is not the first time that, unfortunately, attorneys have been caught up in investigations and have, um, through their own actions, whether it's, it's for themselves, for the benefit of a client, at this point, we do not know. It's not the first time that attorneys have been caught up in investigations. True, but this is the first time probably in American history, where the attorney's client is the president of the United States. Doesn't that add, uh, ratchet up the level of interest, concern, I can't even find the right word, (laughs) in this whole thing? You know, it it certainly ratchets up the level of interest and concern uh, from the public. You know, they're, they're, they're learning about things that typically they may not hear about. Um, but in terms of how the matter is handled, it's likely going to be handled like any other investigation that involves an attorney that the department conducts. I mean, actually, this is similar to the email investigation. You know, the, the issue of who was involved made it of great interest and importance to the American people. But the nuts and bolts of that investigation were like any other. And speaking of the American public, a good chunk of the American public seems to have a vested interest in what and and faith in the Mueller investigation that he'll get to get to the bottom of of whatever happened with Russia's interference in the 2016 election is that faith 
correct or is it misplaced? I think the faith is correct. I think that Mueller um, is a person of integrity and substance. And the investigation, I believe, is being carried out with, with great independence and integrity. Obviously, I have no insight into, into the particulars of it. And I think that he will provide as much information as the law allows him to. And there may be some things that because of the nature, they may be classified, that he may not be able to go into. But I do think we're going to have um, a very, very strong roadmap of this issue of Russian interference. But it's important to note, Jonathan, I think people should remember that that, that yes, we should, we should be looking forward to this report and we should be looking forward to what we can learn from it. But we already know a lot. We already have a lot of information about Russia's activities in this country. We see their activities in other countries. And so the, the concern and the alarm should be sufficiently high based on what we already know. Uh, we don't have to wait for this report to actually raise the issue and start taking actions in this. And what I would say also is there, I know, I know there are people who look at Mueller's investigation as, as possibly um, you know, making changes in other areas as well. Whether or not certain people are caught up in that investigation or not, it is impossible to say. But it does not mean that, that the American people can just sort of sit back and wait for that to happen. We all have a responsibility in how this country is governed. We all have a responsibility to raise our voice and, and talk about things that are of importance to us, as people are doing. We have a responsibility to look at issues that affect us deeply and say, I like the way this is being handled or I don't like the way this is being handled. That responsibility has not gone away and does not go away, regardless of what happens in Mueller's investigation. And as you said, when you were here on the podcast back in December, December 2016, you said the number, the most important job there is, is citizen. It's, it's private citizen. You know, y- your predecessor, Eric Holder, on December 17th of, of, of 2017, sent out a tweet when the frenzy in this town about Mueller being imminently being fired was at its height. He, he tweeted out, absolute red line, the firing of Bob Mueller or crippling the special counsel's office if removed or meaningfully tampered with there must be mass popular peaceful support of both the American people must be seen and heard. They will ultimately be determinative. Do you agree with that? I think the American people are always determinative. They always speak. Um, And so I think at times we may not agree with choices that get made and results from the things that that, that people say in terms of the elections that we have. But I think the American people are always determinative. And this difficult period, if nothing else, has highlighted that. It's highlighted the importance of people weighing in on these issues. I also agree uh, that special counsel should not be fired. Uh, Certainly, there's been nothing brought to light that would come to the standard of removing him at this point in time. Um, All the calls that I've seen for it have been purely partisan in nature. Um, And I think, frankly, uh, we should all be supporting the independence and integrity of the special counsel because that's how we're going to handle this particular sensitive matter, the, the issue of Russia's interference with our election, whether or not there was any collusion, what other issues are going are gonna to come out of that is something that we should all be supporting, finding out the answer to. And frankly, I think our leaders, our current leaders need to, need to also support him because there's nothing more important than an attack on the American democracy. Nothing. Um, there's no greater job of people who lead this government than keeping the American people safe. And so I think that everyone in government now has a vested interest in supporting this investigation. Given the hell you caught and the hell your predecessor caught from 
the leaders on Capitol Hill. Are you stunned by the silence coming from Capitol Hill when it comes to obvious problems with this administration? You know, um, I, I, I would like to say that I am. I would have to say that having spent two years as the attorney general, few things surprise you after that in terms of how people in the political sphere react and respond to things. Um, because I think that there's a different calculus that goes on. Um, and frankly, it's a benefit to, to have been part of the Department of Justice because you you step out of that political calculus and you can look at things just as a matter of what's the right thing to do here, what we, what's, what's needed here, and you view it from the, from the prism of how do we protect the country, whether it's terrorism, corruption, violent crime, opioids, that's your charge. Um, yeah, I think when you're on the Hill, they, they have, for, for whatever reason, they've accepted a different charge. Um, and um, as we discussed in terms of when we tried to raise the alarm about Russia's interference in the election and the potential danger to, to the state systems, it's disappointing when people aren't able, for whatever reason that they've decided, to step outside of that and, and hold on to these larger issues. Uh, but that's their choice. Um, you know, I, I only speak to what I'm able to do. Talk about the the Parkland generation, as I'm calling them. When you, you were talking earlier a moment ago about how the American people are determinative, as a former attorney general, I would love to hear what you think about the activism of these kids. I think it's wonderful. I, I think it is. I think it is wonderful. I think it is inspiring. I think they're an example for all of us. I think that they are part of a tradition of young people raising their voices throughout history. You know, we, we've had a lot of talk lately about the civil rights movement, of course, with the anniversary of Dr. King's death. Um, and if you look at the civil rights movement, young people were in the forefront of that. They were on the front lines of the protest marches, et cetera. Look at Black Lives Matter, you know, founded by young people, women in particular, the Me Too movement, the Parkland students. To me, they're all part of a tradition of young people who still have that sense of optimism and that faith in America. Um, that can get sort of worn down when you've been through the, the fires and you're, you've been in the trenches for a long time. But they hold up a mirror to all of us. And that mirror should let us examine ourselves and ask, what are we doing to support them? What are we doing to raise our voices on an issue that's of importance to us? And you can have a debate about gun control in this country, and we should have debates about it. Um, but you've got to have everyone involved. You've got to hear from the people who are most deeply affected and impacted by gun violence in this country. Um, and the Parkland kids have raised that issue uh, in a way that I think is wonderful. Um, so I support them, and, and I, I'm inspired by them. Have you met any of them? I have not met any of them. Um, and I think they're sort of busy because they are still, you know, I'm in sure school. They're still in school. They're still in school. And, but, but the fact is, you know, they're in school, they're young. All the things that, that people say sometimes mean that they either don't have time or an interest in an issue, and they've, they've shown us, they've proven that wrong. Um, and they've done it from a place of great pain also. You know, one of the things that's very important uh, when, you're, when you work in the Department of Justice is to look at the impact of issues on the victims. Um, and you always try and, and have a place and a space for victims to have their voices be part of the discussion. And the Partland kids in particular have done an excellent job at that. You know, speaking of great pain, people being worn down by what's happening, 
um, were all focused on the Parkland kids and they were victims of a mass shooting. One of the great things they've done was to use their megaphone and platform to spotlight other victims of yes. gun violence around the country. Yes. And it makes me think of what's what happened in Sacramento, which yes. is, you know, as I had to say at one of our board meetings, editorial board meetings, you know, that's every black man's nightmare. Yes, it is. That you know, people are running in, you don't know who they are, and you all you have on you is a cell phone, and then you're dead. Yes. Yes. I, I think it's every black man's night. I think it's every black family's concern also. As as you talk about, uh, you know, raising your kids to to be members of society and respect authority and view government as, as a force for good, but at the same time having to tell them that you're going to have to be extra careful. There's, there are concerns that might be raised. Um, and I think the Parkland kids have done a great job of including all the victims of gun violence other young people in other cities, um, continuing to raise the issue um, that was that was of great importance to me when I was attorney general, which is the relationship between law enforcement uh, and the community, particularly the minority community. You know, I think that, that Sacramento shows us that this issue, which was not new when I began working on it, um, is still alive. You know, the, the relationship that people have to government and, and police, frankly, are often the only face of government that a lot of people see in the course of their daily life. Um, so the relationship that people have with law enforcement is still one um, that we have to have to focus on in this country. Building that trust, having a way to communicate about these issues is vital. Look, it's a, it's a tragedy in Sacramento. Again, I'm not privy to the insides of the investigation, and I await learning more about it with everyone else. But what I would say is that I see Sacramento representing a change already um, in how we handle these situations. You know, one of the things that we really pushed for uh, when I was doing my, my uh, police and community relations tour, so to speak, traveling to different cities, was finding ways to get information out early keeping lines of communication open, discussions about police accountability. So here we have a situation where we're seeing body cameras, number one, being used more and more often. You know, this is a huge step forward. And as a result of the community raising their voices and saying, we need insight into what's going on. It's also a result of police officers saying, you know, we need insight also. We need to be able to have an objective record of what happened if we're going to have people in the community trust us and rely on us. So we're seeing body cameras being used. We're seeing the footage being released. We're seeing the aerial footage being released earlier than in other situations. These are steps in the right direction. It in no way removes the pain of this situation. It in no way undercuts the tragedy of what happened, but it gives that community the tools that they need to start talking about what happened and figuring it out in a way that's going to have, I think, a lot more trust and accountability than other situations in the past. But that trust and accountability gets eroded when... Once the video is released, the body cam video is released, and then announced, uh, it, it's revealed that the body camera mics were muted. Yes. Like, how do yes. you? How how does that not? It's two steps forward, one step back. It's a it's a process. You know, I think that uh, we've also seen situations not in Sacramento where body cameras either don't function or weren't turned on. This also erodes trust. The community says, "Well, you know, how can we really rely?" 
on your word if we don't have the evidence to back it up. And body cameras are important and they're essential. I think as we use them more, we will see that they're a tool. They're not the, the, they're not the only answer. They won't give us the total picture in what happened. Sometimes the body cameras are going to be on, the video will be on, but the angle will not capture what we need to see most. So it's, it's all part of a process and these are, these are tools. When you do have a situation where you don't seem to be utilizing all that tool, that is to say the microphones are off, then I think that the police department's got to figure out, all right, how do we then ensure that people can find out what really happened? How do we make ourselves as transparent as possible so people can have trust and faith in what we find out? Um, and again, it is a process. This, these issues are not new. I've been working on these issues since the 90s when I was a prosecutor in Brooklyn and I tried the Louima case in New York City uh, where uniformed New York City police officers uh, beat and sodomized a Haitian immigrant named Abner Louima uh, in the bathroom of a station house precinct. Um, and those issues were not new then. So it's a work in progress, but we have come a long way. Um, my concern when I see incidents like Sacramento and, and, and New York and even incidents in North Carolina recently is whether or not the communities and the law enforcement groups involved, in fact, have the tools they need to get through this. Um, and again, it's, it's not going to be painless. It will be very painful. But do they have the tools they need to provide an answer to the community and to, and to help law enforcement do better next time? Despite the change in focus at the Department of Justice, do you think that things are still moving in the right direction in terms of repairing or, or building the trust between the community and law enforcement? You know, what I found when I was, was traveling and, and talking to different communities on this issue was that a lot of work, a lot of wonderful work was being done at the community level. And frankly, a lot of law enforcement uh, agencies looked at the environment. They looked at Ferguson. They looked at Baltimore. And they said, we don't want our cities going down that road. Um, and where they thought they might be, they came to us. They came to the department, and they asked for help. They said, listen, can you give us some guidelines? Can you connect us with other jurisdictions who've been through these problems before? Because we want to work on this. We want to get ahead of this so that if something happens in our city, it isn't a conflagration, um, even though it's going to be a painful situation. And I think that law enforcement is still committed to that. I mean, anyone who went through... Um, the, the issues of the last few years knows that you've got to have a strong relationship with the community. That being said, the Department of Justice, in my view, has a very important role to play in, in supporting that relationship, in providing tools and resources that help law enforcement and community members make that connection. And to the extent that the department is not going to be involved in that conversation, it's a missed opportunity. And in my view, it's, it's very unfortunate. As I mentioned before, you before you were Attorney General of the United States, you were the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District. There, you built up a reputation of like the utmost integrity. You brought down mobsters. You brought down yeah. You did bring bring down FIFA. FIFA brought yes. down FIFA. But ever since that moment, on that hundred seven degree day on the tarmac in Arizona, that reputation has taken a hit. I'm just wondering how hard has it been for you to confront that, that after all that work, decades of, of work, of hard work of building a reputation, that one, one incident 
has, for a lot of people, called into, into question all of that work and that integrity and that reputation. Well, you know, it's, it's never pleasant to be the subject of, uh, of negative reports or scrutiny or anything like that. But I'll tell you, um, if, if you want to win a popularity contest, don't become a prosecutor. <laughs> um, because there's it, no matter what you do in every situation, large or small, highly publicized or not, people are gonna, some people are going to be unhappy with your decision because of the nature of what you do. We hold people accountable for some of the most heinous crimes and things that they have done. We deal with people who have, have, have committed some of the most atrocious acts against their fellow human beings that you can think of. And we deal with people who've been victimized uh, in many, many ways. And even though you are trying to um, oftentimes provide justice for them or provide um, a process for them, you, you're taking them down a very difficult path also. Um, so, you know, part of that comes with the territories, that people are going to scrutinize your actions as a prosecutor, and they're going to come to the conclusion that they come to. All you can do is, is hold on to your own integrity. All you can do is describe why you did certain things. One of the things that was very important to me, even when I was a young lawyer, was when I would talk with the press, is you often get questions you can't answer. And I would say to them, you know, there are going to be some questions I can't answer, but I'll tell you why. I can't answer them so that you understand where I'm coming from with this. And that's what I've tried to do throughout my tenure as attorney general as well. Um, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I've worked in, in both Republican and Democrat administrations. I was hired under the first president, George Bush, as an AUSA by a Republican U.S. attorney, but told that my job was just to do the right thing and to protect the people of the district, of the state, and of the country. And that's been, that's been my mantra throughout. Um, I think part of the irony that I found throughout that entire time was that when I was the U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, um, and I got criticized then also, I got criticized for prosecuting Democrats in the public corruption cases that, uh, that the office brought because we were prosecuting some prominent Democrats who were also members of the minority community. I got criticized for that also. You know, are you holding people to a higher standard? And my response was then and now that adherence to the law and protection of the public trust is not a higher standard. It's everyone's standard. And if someone steps off of that, they have to be held accountable regardless of the position that they hold. Um, so yes, you know, I think it was more visible this time around. But if you're going to take the hard cases, if you're going to work on the challenging issues, if you're going to, if you're going to talk to communities about why they should have trust and faith in, in law enforcement officers, you're going to get some criticism at that very meeting. If you're going to talk to law enforcement officers about why it's important for them to open up their training and open up um, you know, their own review process because people otherwise aren't going to have faith in them. You're going to get some criticism from those officers in that very meeting, but that's not a reason to stop doing it. Loretta Lynch, 83rd Attorney General of the United States. Thanks for coming back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 